This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenevec. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern Time on Bloomberg Radio. Or watch us on YouTube. Search Bloomberg Global News. During a White House COVID-19 response team briefing earlier today, CDC Director Rochelle Walensky explained why Americans need to remain vigilant in fighting the virus. Check it out. This is a critical moment in our fight against the pandemic. As we see increases in cases, we can't afford to let our guard down. We are so close, so very close to getting back to the everyday activities we all miss so much. And that, of course, was CDC Director Rochelle Walensky earlier today. This, as there's many uh, virus and vaccine headlines again, and we just had one uh, just a few minutes ago crossing the Bloomberg France, starting a four-week nationwide lockdown on Saturday. This coming from uh, their leader, Emmanuel Macron. And, of course, just a reminder that there's parts of the world that are still seeing um, the numbers really troubling. Yeah, despite the progress that we've made here in the United Mm -hmm. States, much of the world remains unvaccinated. Dr. Ian Lustbader is Clinical Associate Professor of Medicine at NYU Langone Medical Center. Joining us now on the phone from New York City, Dr. Lusbader, it's always great when you join us. Thank you so much for taking the time. Let's get right into it and talk about what's happening in Europe. As we just learned from Carol, France starting a four-week nationwide lockdown on Saturday. The big question I have is, is, is this the direction that, that we're going in here, considering we're starting to see cases creep up as well? I don't think so. And happy Wednesday, Tim and Carol. Hope all is well. Uh, Definitely, there's a number of countries around the world that are seeing a rise. Fortunately, uh, we're not seeing a big rise in the United States, but uh, and we've done fairly well, a lot further to go in terms of vaccinations. But France is uh, in a bit of trouble. Poland, uh, part of the UK and certainly other countries like Brazil, uh, even Mexico. So we're seeing uh, a number of areas, and I think they all relate to probably one of three or four different reasons. One is vaccine availability. We've been fairly fortunate here that we've purchased uh, a large number of uh, different vaccines. They're all fairly effective. And I think the availability now is even greater. So I think we've had that. Many countries in Europe have been uh, either hesitant to take vaccines, and some of them relate to, I'll take this vaccine, but not that, you know, another vaccine. They're suspicious about AstraZeneca uh, or GSK or or, uh, Pfizer has a preference. So um, part of it is... um, the availability part of it is vaccine hesitancy part of it is lifestyle if they're a more social country and they're not really following barriers uh six feet and so forth if they're more social but also some new strains that uh, b117 uh has a higher transmissibility so if you're dealing with um a population that has not had a lot of vaccine and you've got a variant that is more transmissible in other words one person can infect instead of two or three potentially four five or six people then you're going to have uh, many more problems so hmm are we likely to have a fourth wave because of people who might not be taking the vaccine or putting it off and because we're seeing uh, a COVID-19 strain that as it mutates or, var- or as we see the variants and they're higher, as you said, a higher transmissibility, are we likely then to have a fourth wave? 
Well, I think that's what the authorities are worried about, and I think we could do a better job at addressing people's vaccine hesitancy. There are people who who are concerned about taking it. There are a lot of rumors, unfortunately, on social media and on the Internet that are really misinforming people. And I don't think it's enough to say we have to keep our guard up and we have to you know, get everyone vaccinated. I think we need to directly address some of the um, concerns in terms of safety uh, and in terms we just had uh, Pfizer data that showed very uh, high efficacy in kids uh, 12 to 15. Uh, I think we need to broaden our availability and really kind of address populations that are concerned, why they're concerned, and, and can we have the experts uh, from the CDC or other infectious disease specialists kind of really spell out what people are worried about and why those concerns really uh, are, are not so valid. Dr. Lusbader, are we still seeing people change their thoughts around getting the vaccine in the sense of what we saw early on December, January, especially with, with, with healthcare workers? Maybe they were hesitant, but then people inside their social circles, inside their families started getting the vaccine, their friends. And then that sort of changed the way that they thought about it. Is that still happening? Very much so. And I think you've hit on a very important point, which is people um, need to share with others that they've had the vaccine, that they did well with it. There are always some mild side effects. I think some people are concerned about, you know, potentially longer term uh, side effects, which we're really not seeing. Um, or this report about clots and so forth, which really didn't pan out either. And I think the best way to reduce vaccine hesitancy is to have people in a peer group, a, a socioeconomic group, your friends basically say, hey, I did fine, you should get it as well. Uh, and we're not seeing that as much as we should. We talked about the Pfizer vaccine. It gives 100% protection for kids ages 12 to 15. That was in a study that the company released the data for early this morning, Dr. Lusbader. It doesn't get any better than 100%, right? Yes, really encouraging data. And in order to really reach herd immunity, which unfortunately is is the only reasonable way we're going to end the pandemic, I know many people talk about therapeutics and so forth, but really having to have people get the infection and then treat them is 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 a very cumbersome way. So vaccines really are the key, and uh, having 100% efficacy in this young population that is certainly exposed to uh, in social settings and so forth um, and can harbor the virus with a little less uh, symptoms sometimes. This really is key data and hopefully will reassure people in terms of safety, certainly efficacy. And I think we need to ramp this up and and ultimately distribute it. That's really the key thing is getting the uh, vaccine eligibility for really more people and ultimately younger people is is the way to uh, to move forward. Hey, speaking of key data, research also, uh, I think it was out just this week too, uh, there was a study, it's kind of a growing part of evidence suggesting that the vaccines, these are the vaccines by Moderna and Pfizer, not only reduce the risk of getting seriously ill with COVID-19, but can prevent catching the virus in the first place. In other words, Ian, we can't be hosts, even if we're vaccinated. That's also key. 
I agree with you completely. You know, many people are concerned or one of the excuses for vaccine hesitancy is saying, look, even if I get the vaccine, I could still harbor it in my nasopharynx and transmit it. And that never really made much sense to me, because once you have antibodies, it's much less likely. Of course, you've got blood flow and antibodies in your in your nose and nasopharynx. So, you know, there are probably a few people who may have that you know, with studies where they swab you after a vaccine. But the the evidence to me is building greater and greater that the vaccines will really make a big difference. Also in decreasing transmission and acquisition of, uh, of getting it. But yet, for example, we have about 25 and 100 people in the U.S. that have had the vaccine. About 25, 26 percent were growing, about 33 out of 100 in the U.K., but only about 8 out of 100, only about 8 percent in Europe, which I think is why uh, we're seeing this uh, rise in cases. Well, we're seeing the rise in cases here. We have to address that. Well, I want to talk about that a little bit, because in the United Kingdom, where the vaccination campaign is uh, a few weeks or even a month ahead of where we are in the United States, um, Israel significantly ahead of the United States as well. uh, Cases and deaths have really, really dropped. When does that happen here? Like, what do we know about the inflection point that happened in those countries and, and when that starts to happen in the U.S.? Well, the numbers in Israel are are certainly encouraging. They're closer to like 75 or 80 percent of the population, or 75 or 80 out of 100. So uh, that's really when you have herd immunity, and 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 the numbers show that. It's hard to know here because uh, part of herd immunity are people who've already had the virus, and we think those antibodies do stay around for a while. So I think our numbers, I think our herd immunity is higher than the 25%. I'm guessing we're probably closer to 50%. And I think that that number is close to the 60 or 70 percent that we really need in order to sort of break viral transmission. So I think we're close, but I think as the CDC says, we're not there yet. Um, Hopefully in the next few months and well before the summer, hopefully we will reach those numbers where we will not have to have the same uh, restrictions. But we don't. I think it's possible. And do we know how long we stay protected by these vaccines? Is it months? Is it a year? We don't. And I think that's a really good question. And people ask me that question, too. They say, well, why should I even take the vaccine? I don't know how long it's protective. We do have studies out, certainly six to now going on maybe 12 months, that do suggest there is protection. And people may need a booster. We don't really know. Uh, And certainly if there are more... um, Variance is, is possible. You may need a, a, a new strain booster, but I wouldn't really you know, worry about that at this point because it's hard to measure T cells, mm-hmm. and we do think that immunity may be longer even than than antibodies. But the antibody levels are high, and they do last for many months at least. Look, I got to say, I'm not so concerned about the idea of getting a booster. It's it's what I do each year for a flu shot. So why not just throw the exactly. flu shot in with a booster for the COVID shot? It's it, and look, I know that not everybody gets a flu shot, but Perhaps that right. will change. Do we get T cells out of these vaccines? Just quickly? We think we do. Yes, absolutely. And that probably provides much longer uh, lasting immunity than the actual titer of right. the antibodies. But with all the studies, the antibody titers are high, higher than the natural infection, and last even longer. So I think there's a lot of good data, and we need to address that. Well, always and good. Next it- time, let's talk about the lab leaks. <laughs> <laughs> 
Listen, always good information from you. I was thinking, I can't wait to where we're in a world where we can just go wherever we want with uh, Dr. Les Bader because we just cover so many different Yeah, topics. maybe do it in the studio too. <laughs> do it in the studio. All right, Dr. Ian Les Bader, stay safe, be well. Clinical Associate Professor of Medicine at NYU Langone Medical Center on the phone in New York City. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic from Bloomberg Radio. So we are hyper-focused on President Biden's two and a quarter trillion dollar U.S. infrastructure plan. He is expected to announce it in about, I think, 90 minutes from now. And reporting for Bloomberg Business Week is national correspondent Josh Green. He wrote and notes that the infrastructure boon risks adding to the president's immigration woes. It's another side of the story that we hadn't thought about. Yeah, and like everything else, it is much more nuanced than meets the eye. Uh, Joel Weber is editor at Bloomberg Business Week, joining us on the remote from Brooklyn. Amanda Colson hurley is politics editor for Bloomberg Business Week. Uh, Joel, Josh makes a great point in this piece. He makes a lot of great points that the focus really has been on, on, on one thing, this idea of a surge at the border, but there's a reason why people are coming across the United States border with Mexico. And at the same time, it's not necessarily as many children as people think. Yeah, and I thought what Josh did that was really interesting when, in this was just like take it to, sort of two steps further than than at least my brain was was already going, which was, you know, this infrastructure bill uh, that we expect Biden to announce big money. It will mean that there will be a big uh, boost to the economy. It also means that the humanitarian crisis, the immigration uh, uh, struggles that we've seen on the border could only get amplified because of that. So, so Amanda, let's bring you in. Um, how, how, how is Josh able to connect those dots? Yeah, I mean, the way that Josh connects them is really looking at um, the uh, you know, economic uh, prospects in both the U.S. and in Mexico. Um, one of the yeah one of the things that's kind of been missed uh, or overlooked in some of the coverage of what's going on at the border is that although there's been this um, quite pronounced increase in uh, families seeking asylum, there's also been um, a steady increase since last year in the number of uh, uh, you know just kind of sole <laughs> sole adults not traveling with families not seeking asylum. Uh, just crossing the border for, uh, for you know, economic opportunity. Um, and uh, a lot of those um, adults traveling alone are, are, are also Mexican. And so what, you know, what Josh says is that, um, you know, a lot of these migrants are drawn to, uh, you know, opportunities in the U.S. as the U.S. recovers from the pandemic, uh, you know, with vaccination going pretty well here, uh, with jobs coming back. Uh, it's it's an attractive prospect. And Mexico, uh, you know, on the other hand, uh, has been hit very hard by COVID, as has the U.S., but, uh, you know, vaccination is not nearly so far along. Uh, and also the Mexican government has not provided, uh, you know, a generous relief at all. Uh, it's taken more of a, a kind of austerity approach. So those kind of factors, I think, for, for some prospective migrants would would uh, tip the balance to, uh, you know, maybe maybe trying to, to go to the U.S. This is one of those stories, as you said at the top, Tim, it's like just the facts. And that this whole idea of this data, 82% of those apprehended recently are single adults crossing the border from Mexico into the U.S., 60% are Mexicans. The thing that's interesting about this, Amanda, too, first of all, is getting those statistics and kind of understanding exactly what's going on, um, but also understanding that adults who are looking for jobs 
they don't require maybe, you know, as much handling as obviously kids would who are crossing the border from Mexico into the United States. Oh, that's right. And, uh, you know, I, one of the things that, uh, that Josh Green notes in this in the story uh, is that obviously, you know, higher numbers of people making that crossing, uh, you know, would be a logistical and, and potentially political, you know, headache right. for the Biden administration, but not the same way as, um, you know, unaccompanied minors or or families uh, in, in terms of um, these are not people fleeing uh, persecution, you know, back home. Uh, if uh, if they end up being deported, it's, uh, you know, it's not a humanitarian crisis of sending them back into danger. So um, some of those logistical and uh, complications and political risks are not uh, do not rise to the level that they would um, with the uh, family asylum seekers. So given that we expect the economy to start to do and continue to do pretty well here in the United States, unclear how the economy in Mexico will do, but as Josh points out, they are significantly behind the United States when it comes to inoculating the population. Well, at the the same time, uh, I'm I'm wondering about potential tools uh, that the White House actually has for fixing this crisis. Uh, What are those, Amanda? Um. Yeah, I mean, if there are certain policies, uh, you know, that it could try to pursue, um, you know, the Trump administration had uh, suspended temporary work visas. Um, it could bring those back, um, you know, and kind of generally uh, open up some of those uh, legal paths to immigration that have been have been blocked for a while. And part of what uh, what we're seeing with the increase in unauthorized uh uh, immigration is um, kind of overflow from what, you know, otherwise might have happened in, in legal channels. Um, you know, the Biden administration could even kind of offer assistance to Mexico mm-hmm. uh, with vaccination. You know, it could, um, right. uh, you know, when we have a surplus of vaccine, or I guess we already do, you know, uh, divert some of that to Mexico. And that would help revive uh, revive the Mexican economy in turn. So then people uh, would have more opportunities at home. Right. It's something we talked to uh, Nobel laureate Joseph Stiglitz about recently, about how the developed world has to help out the developing nations on a couple different levels. But, you know, first and foremost, helping them get COVID under control and sharing those vaccines. Folks, thank you so much. Bloomberg Businessweek editor Joel Weber with us, along with Bloomberg Businessweek politics editor Amanda Colson hurley This is Bloomberg Businessweek with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic from Bloomberg Radio. So among our most read stories in the Bloomberg includes this next one, uh, not delivering in its first day of trading as a public company. We're talking about Deliveroo Holdings collapsing, Tim, in its London public debut, investors abandoning the uh, food delivery startup, and that's because of its labor practices, among other things. Yeah, really interesting story happening, and it's not one that's necessarily playing out in the United States, and that's no. what's so interesting to me about this, because investors here don't really seem to care no. about those but things. But it's trending high on it the is. Bloomberg. It is. Oh, it is. Um, what I mean, though, is investors don't care about it with American companies. Yeah, exactly. That's what I mean. Oh, that it doesn't transfer. Yeah, it doesn't transfer. Diana Gomes is consumer staples analyst at Bloomberg Intelligence, joining us on the phone from London. Diana, help us make sense of this, because what I'm what I'm getting at here is that ESG is something that investors talk a lot about here. It's something that bankers talk a lot about. But at the end of the day, it's not part of earnings. And investors look at earnings. That's what moves a company's stock. And it seems like from what I've read and from what I understand about the delivery story, there are some big investors that are unwilling to actually buy the company's stock because of the company's labor practices. 
Uh, yes, hi. Uh, thank you for having me. And yeah. um, that's uh, <laughs> that's partially true that uh, uh, ESG doesn't quite transfer to earnings. Um, so it's uh, some of the biggest UK uh, asset managers came out uh, over the last week saying this is not aligned with uh, with our investment uh, practice. And yes, part of it has to do with um, the status of the, the riders. So Deliveroo is a logistics-focused, uh, trying to serve on-demand uh, food delivery from restaurants and uh, also grocery stores. So it, it needs this big fleet of uh, riders that can um, really serve the demand for, for these uh, goods, especially at the time where we are spending so, so much time at home uh, with lockdowns and restrictions. So there is some concern as some of the, the riders uh, may be earning uh, much less than the minimum wage, and, and that really depends how we count the hours. But the other point is uh, this is a profit-lossing company, so it, it has been uh, burning cash. Uh, and the possible regulation changes, especially in, in many of the European markets where Deliveroo competes with the other very aggressive competitors, the regulation is changing and uh, mm. that will mean higher costs because it could mean uh, a minimum wage, uh, it can mean insurance, um, paid uh, holidays, leave, um, and all that will then transfer into the earnings. So it, it is a, a big risk and it's a risk that Deliveroo reflected in their perspectives as well. Diana, I got a couple of questions, but how... How likely is this, too, that just these types of companies, which have been pandemic plays in the past year, are just kind of falling out of favor with investors? We see that, and you point this out in your story. I mean, DoorDash is down 23% this month. Uh, You see others like that. Um, Also, Just Eat Takeaway, European rival, uh, Delivery Hero, they have fallen this year. Is it just a case of, like, eh, not so interested in these kinds of companies right now? Yes, yeah, so the, the the story is really turning as we see the vaccinations rolling out, even if uh, quite slowly in, in some countries. But the, uh, the story is turning into, uh, yes, the consumer will want to do things outside the house and will want to go uh, dine at their favorite restaurants and meet friends and all that. So these companies rely on delivering meals from restaurants at home. Uh, and th- that's not the demand will not be at the same level as it was right. in 2020. I, I have to say, uh, Tim and I had a conversation off air, and we're just like so tired of takeout. Like, just like we're talking about cooking, it's hard when you're working and all this stuff, right, Tim? But we were just saying, I'm done, kind of with takeout. Yeah, but the, the hard. I mean, look, I, it's it's a tough it's a tough thing to be thinking about because it, in one sense, it has absolutely saved people during Correct. during the pandemic when it was like difficult to get other types of food. People who were really concerned about going outside and, and just thinking about the people who were the essential workers who were delivering this food right Right. and that's a big part of the conversation here in the united states but i go back to some companies restaurants exactly yeah and helping out restaurants but a big part of the conversation is is it's it's just not necessarily on the radar of investors the same way that it's on the radar of investors in the uk when they're thinking about the regulatory risks i think and 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 perhaps this is some sort of harbinger of things to come in the united states Uh, what do you think diana i mean do, do you think there's a chance that some of the regulatory risk could come to u.s companies Yes, I think the regulatory risk is 
smaller in the U.S., uh, especially with the, the California Act that was yeah. uh, agreed on uh, quite recently. That's that, that's required some minimum benefits to be paid, mm-hmm. but it, it was quite limited. So there and it was limited to California as well. So I think the the sentiment and the the perspectives are different, and th- that probably hurts the Liberal as well because they had the the choice of living right. in London instead of New York, and and I, yeah. Well, that's what I wonder that. too about what it ultimately does for the London IPO market. Diana, thank you so much um, for breaking it down. Diana Gomes, consumer staples uh, analyst at Bloomberg Intelligence, with us on the phone in London. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive home. Excuse me, I wanna drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That punk the music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. All right, just about uh, 10 and a half minutes left in today's trading session. Let's get to it with Walter Todd, Chief Investment Officer, Greenwood Capital Associates, back with us and on the phone from Greenwood, South Carolina. Walter, how are you? Doing good, Carol. Thanks for having me on today. Thank you. Well, it's good to have you back with us. Uh, how do you feel like where we are in terms of out of COVID, into a recovery, into blank for the markets. Yeah, it's really it's really amazing to reflect back on on twelve months ago. I was just looking at S and P closed at twenty five eighty four that day, and we're we're pushing four thousand here this afternoon. So, one of the biggest questions I get from people is, how do you explain this disconnect between what's happened in the markets over the past twelve months and what's you know happened in the economy? And that's it's very difficult to explain until you look at the Federal Reserve balance sheet and the, and the U.S. Uh, deficit, and then you can you can make some sense of it. But looking forward, I, you know, I feel very good about where we are kind of on the vaccine front here in the U.S. and the outlook for the economy for the rest of the year. But uh, ironically, the market may struggle a little bit more as we reopen than it did when you know things seemed the worst. So you kind of get that. Uh, the market looking ahead, anticipating the reopening, and then you know, the challenge as you actually get very good economic numbers uh, for the rest of this year. So a lot of optimism already priced into markets is what you're saying, right? Yeah, I think you know, the, I think there is a, as the saying goes, the easy money's been made, and I think the 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 money moving forward or the the gains moving forward are going to be more challenging, uh, going to be more nuanced. There's going to be a lot of chop, uh, which we've seen over the past you know month or so in terms of the rotation in the market. And then we've got the risks out there you know, from Europe. I mean, France just announced today they're going back into lockdown uh, for four weeks. So we've got other parts of the globe that are not in nearly as good shape as the U.S. is. Does that make you a little nervous when you see what's going on over in Europe? Yeah, definitely. I mean, that, you know, Europe as a block is a bigger you know, economic um, influence on the world economy than the U.S. So it's very important. Um, they're clearly lagging behind from a vaccine standpoint, and, and I think that is one of the bigger risks out there that they don't kind of get a move and, and start to emerge from this uh, as we have. Of course, they don't have the benefit of, uh, you know, $1,400 checks going in into bank accounts. Uh, so that's that's a little bit of a challenge as well. I have to say, you know, you pull up the S&P 500. I'm just doing that on the Bloomberg and obviously it doesn't work for radio. But, you know, we were kind of building off of the new year. 
and then you definitely saw, I'm going back to pre-pandemic. So we built up and then of course there was a big drop down into um, you know, March 23rd of 2020. And then we've had quite a rally and we have recovered not only what we lost, um, because of the pandemic, but we've you know lost a certain amount then. And that's where you start to say, Walter, if you look at a chart like that, you're thinking, okay, how much are we getting ahead of ourselves? Because I do wonder where the economy would have been today if we hadn't dealt with the pandemic. Would we be in a higher rate environment? What kind of growth? You know, would the labor market continue to be stressed? I mean, I just wonder. Yeah, I mean, I, I think um, when you kind of look at that assessment over the past year, I, I think clearly the the moves that the central bank made and that the government made in terms of the stimulus and the support that they provided, provided that uh, downside support for the market. But we still have all these issues. We have you know 10 million fewer jobs than we did a year ago. We still got close to 19 million people collecting some form of unemployment insurance. So there's still a lot of work to be done. But clearly, the support that you know the central bank and, and the government you know, put out there was a, was a big tailwind for financial markets. I'm wondering what happens when it comes to taxes, because part of the infrastructure plan, and we're going to hear from the president uh, in a little over a half hour. That's when a little on uh, a, li- a little around a half hour. It's when he's scheduled to talk at 4:20 uh, Eastern time today, uh, and unveil more details about his infrastructure plan. Some of those details include a hike on corporate taxes to 28% from 21%. Market's not moving negatively on that news. It doesn't seem like investors are concerned about a corporate tax hike. Why do you think that is? Yeah, that's a great point, Tim. I mean, I think the the corporate tax hike was broadly anticipated, the rate to 28% that's being proposed. I think the the expectation that's going to be walked back down to 25, so go from 21 to 25, it's it's not insignificant, but it's not, you know, a, a huge move. I think investors may be missing the fact that this is just part one of this plan in terms of the spending and the taxes. So there's going to be a second part of this plan that's going to include additional taxes that may bite a little bit more. They may include capital gains, uh, taxes. They may include higher individual taxes uh, as well. So I think the total tax bill that's going to be proposed is probably going to be you know, push $3 trillion. Mm-hmm. And when it fully comes out, that may be a bit of a shock uh, to investors, even though we do have spending on the other side of it. But remember, taxes hit immediately. Right. The, spend, the spending is going out over ten, you know, eight to 10 years. So there's going to be a drag when we head into 2022 because of that. Hey, Walter Todd, as uh, an equity investor uh, or someone who is investing in the equity market, just got about 30 seconds here. What's more problematic, capital gains taxes or a corporate tax hike for publicly held companies in particular? Just quickly. Yeah, I think I think from an investor perspective, the capital gains hike would be more significant. And the main one of the main reasons for that is there's there's the prospect that may become effective upon enactment. In other words, mm-hmm. if it happens and they pass it in September, it could become effective this year. And that would be problematic for investors, I think. All right. Always good to check in with you. Walter Todd, President and Chief Investment Officer of at Greenwood Capital Associates, on the phone from Greenwood, South Carolina. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Download the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. And you can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio or watch us on YouTube. Search Bloomberg Global News.